Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Uh, I, I got to use some of uh, uh, some ideas from your book and they were just like, oh, wow, that's, this is crazy. So Paul is doing like this whole psychotheology stuff there. <laughs> So they were kind of interested about it. They were like, do you have any book that talks about that? And I was like, I do, but not one that you will understand because it's in English. And yeah. even if you knew English, you'll probably need a class for that. Too. Uh, well, Dave, we could send David down. He could explain yeah, yeah. it. He's got his Spanish down pretty good. He's got uh, a, some international uh, background there. With He knows how to be in different cultures. I can be in different cultures. I can go down to Mexico and I'd, I'd survive. But I don't know, Paul, you need a PhD just to explain your book is all I'm saying. <laughs> How you doing, Justin? I got it. Let me make a point prior. Uh, since it's all you guys and we're all good buddies, uh, we can do a bit of a riff here. I've been, been thinking of a critique of Coakley. First of all, step one, as all of you who were in the Romans class recognized, I think we meet, we need to make a sharp distinction between Romans 7 and Romans 8. That Romans 7 is a depiction of a to- form of suffering, and could we say even dereliction, pertaining to a failed humanity. Romans 8 is a complete displacement and departure from that form of suffering. And so when we think about suffering due to sin, and I'm not sure that Coakley is making this distinction, I would think that should not be part of the groaning, the new birth that is described in chapter 8. In my book, the thing that I think is key to identifying the human tendency to sin is to in some way valorize the negative, to valorize death. Coakley may be guilty of this, the idea that how we would translate the kenosis of Philippians 2, Christ emptying himself. Who does the emptying? And where where does the emptying take place is the question, right? Is the kenotic movement simply that of Christ? Is it a part of that God himself then in Christ is emptied? We can read in a Moltmannian fashion, even Hans von Balthasar, uh, read the, the suffering, the emptying as one that applies to deity, and then that's going to be taken up in a discussion of who God is. Verse 6 and 7, yeah, who subsisting in God's form did not deem being on equal terms with God a thing to be grasped but instead emptied himself, taking a slave's form, coming to be in a likeness of human beings, and being found as a human being in shape, he reduced himself, becoming obedient all the way to death, and a death Death by cross. You know, it's like the way to glorification is through emptying, it's through service. Christ is exalted because of his emptying and service. Part of what is taking place in Philippians is Paul is giving us models including himself and Christ, that we're to follow. How you interpret this is going to be also then how you interpret Romans 7 and 8. 
and partly Romans 6. And when we talk about our participation in the Trinity, I think we need to make a clear distinction between self-emptying or a kind of to rid ourselves of an ego, of a pursuit of egolessness, and what's happening in Romans 8. In other words, I don't think you get to Romans 8 through a setting aside the self, that it's a continual displacement of the self. What happens in 8 is an alternative human subjectivity to that which is in chapter 7. And so the movement you know, ours is not a dispossessing ourselves of ourselves. That when Christ says that he who shall save his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake in the Gospels, you know, how do you do? You need to do both phases of that. And that's what's at stake here. That's what's at issue. I believe in our reading of how you do Romans 8 or how Romans 8 is done to us. The difference that you get is in a kind of theological mysticism that is going to arise in the West that is focused on the idea of a privileging of the negative, a privileging of the apophatic, the privileging as in the 19th century, but also there of Christ's cry of dereliction, that in some depictions of Romans 8, the picture is, oh, that's what we need to do to do Romans 8. And I, I think that's mistaken. And sometimes Coakley sounds like that's what she's saying. What is the cry of dereliction? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But in the context, people always say, point to Psalm 22. And it's not just completely a, a thing of abandonment, Jesus is saying. Read it in the context of where he's quoting from. That's not what is going on. Right. In other words, you got to read the you got to read the whole psalm. But that's not the way that many people in the West, and here I'm thinking obviously of Moltmann, Van Balthazar, and also Rowan Williams, interestingly. And of course, what they're doing, Rowan Williams and Coakley are going to both read St. John of the Cross, and they're going to interpret St. John of the Cross from a peculiarly Western perspective. And then you can get other interpretations of St. John of the Cross, that is going to say, no, that's a misunderstanding, that St. John of the Cross is not in, you know, the idea of the aridness, the dryness of the soul, the dark night of the soul, as if that is a necessary part of encountering God. That's the way Williams and, and, and the Coakley seems to be reading that understanding. They're both going to refer to St. John of the Cross. And so the, the question is, is that true that we go through these times of dryness of suffering, is that the kind of suffering that we share with Christ? Or, in fact, is that not the suffering of Christ, but a suffering due to our own uh, form of finitude and sinfulness? We've been talking about desire. We've been talking about that desire is located in God, that it's ultimately God's desire. And, of course, another theme in Scripture and I read this in Psalm 42, that as a deer pants after the water, so my soul pants after you. We often picture that psalm as if it's depicting a kind of happy estate. But actually, the psalmist is not describing a good thing, this panting after God. You know, the next verse, he says, my tears are my food, that I'm in suffering 
God, why have you forgotten me? I'm panting after God because he seems to be absent. And so the question is, I think that sometimes we look at that desire for God as if it is the end point of the desire that we've been describing. But actually what the, the psalmist is describing, he refers back to a time when he did feel God's presence, when he led people into the temple and you know they were dancing and rejoicing. And he remembers this time in which he felt God's presence. And so it's not the panting suffering that is normative or a fulfillment of desire, desire of God or desire of humans. Uh, in fact, that is not normative. You know, I'm wondering in the context of what you're saying, you know, the Beatitudes. So our Lord Jesus Christ starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. He says, blessed are those who mourn, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Uh-huh we could go all the way through, you know, you're, you're excluded. I guess I'm, I'm wondering what that might. What's the other side of the blessed though? Well, he is. Well, that's, what's interesting. There might not even have to be an extra, an extra side because it is blissful are those who mourn blessed blissful Makarios, you know, are those who mourn. So it's like, it's an interesting paradox right there within that very construction of the beatitude blessed are those who mourn. It's quite paradoxical, right? So maybe that speaks to your point. It's not the mourning that's the good thing. It's that, oh, you're going to be comforted. Well, I don't know about that, though. That's what I was thinking, because it depends there, you know, how you read that, because is is our Lord saying that, well, no, that, you know, what are you mourning over? Well, maybe you're mourning over this, you know, your, your sins. Maybe you're mourning over the state of your own wretchedness, like Paul does in Romans seven i mean maybe that's a different kind of wretchedness that he's decrying there yeah i guess i guess back to your there's a couple points that you had made earlier i i would just want to say that whatever our lord jesus christ did whether it's whenever jesus wept or whenever he you know cried out you know in his forsakenness that he was fully human you know and i know you'd want to say the same thing that in those moments he was he was fully human and so whatever it must mean for us to be human Jesus was even more human when, when he was doing it. And the thing that, the thing that, I, that we've talked about a couple of times in regards to like what you're doing between Romans and seven and Romans eight that I've wondered is like, what's the connection point between the two types of subjectivity? Because I know that you wouldn't want to say, you know, you said a little bit ago that I don't want to misquote you, but it was something along the lines of, you know, it's a completely different subjectivity. It's a, it's a, it's a completely different form of sort of being human maybe completely you didn't say but that it kind of had that feeling to it that like well we're talking about a different sort of experience of subjectivity but my my question to you has always been like okay but most of us the people that i work with and i'm sure the people that we work with in our in our ministries as as pastors or chaplains or whatever it is that we're doing are people who are living in the in the metaxological you know they're in the between or whatever that they're that they're uh, and i know this is where i spend a lot of time i wish that i always lived in romans 8 but unfortunately wretched man that i am I often find myself uh, in the midst of whatever's going on there in romans 7 and so whether it's me lamenting my own like i in other words like i guess all that to say that is it such a bad thing for our tears like you were quoting there from psalm 42 or our our lamentation over our own estate because of our sinfulness or our lack of our union with God or our continual sort of going back to our vomit, that, that we're blissful because of that, because we're on, that marks our sort of way on the road, on the right road. He, he says in Luke, those of you who laugh now, 
will sort of mourn later, you know, and those who mourn now uh, will be comforted. Yeah, I like what you're saying. Part of the question at stake here is how do you get from Romans 7 to Romans 8? What has happened between those two subjectivities? And the reason why I brought that up is because you understand that there's the whole distinction, oftentimes, it doesn't matter West, East, or whatever, but between things like grace and nature or, or sort of supernature, you know, in nature, but we can do all these different divisions. Justin has talked about this with conversion, that it's a process. It is a process that we're in the midst of. We really do have to unlearn our sort of sinful habits of, of being alienated from God. It's like that's that's kind of like our normal state as fallen creatures. So it's it's actually, for me at least, like difficult, you know, to to do the things necessary to try to keep some sort of semblance of connectedness to what I said right. last class, which I do think that our true selves is God. I think that our true inward, our most inward self is the Holy Spirit, is God. And so I think that maybe it's like a return to that, you know, maybe in Romans 8. But again, I, that is a question that I have with, with the work that you're doing is because whatever that inbreaking is that happens, well, one would think that whether it's the image of God or something, that there, there has to be some kind of connection point between the two, because I still have the same body. Yeah, yeah. what's undone is not God's good creation. That, that's clear, right? That when God saves us, he's not saving us from out of what he's done. He's saving us from out of what we've done and what we would do. And so it's not God over and against creation. It's not God in competition with creation, but it's God bringing creation back in, in order to fulfillment of Genesis, of creation. This is very Eastern, you know, a participation. And so we can read the world in a wrong sense as being in competition with God. And of course, there is that usage in John that there is a world, but that world is constituted not by God, but by human beings. And so the world that is undone is that world of Romans 7 in the individual, but also the principalities and powers, the, the prince of the power of the air that there is a displacement of that. And so the way that I would answer, and of course, what you said is, well, certainly we participate in this and we're bringing this about in our lives. But I think the way that you get from Romans 7 to 8 is actually Romans 6. And that is the depiction, that is Paul is depicting in Romans 6, the way in which we participate in the death of Christ. That is, we don't repeat it. We don't repeat the dereliction. We don't repeat the agony but we are tied to, we're participating in, we're joined to the death of Christ in baptism. So that the picture is that we have died and been raised with Christ. And so the reality of seven is undone and displaced with what the reality of eight through the depiction of what's in six. It doesn't mean that we don't have to put forth effort Certainly, there is a kind of ascetic, you know, we still have what's in Romans 8, these prayer practices, the discipline of walking as Jesus walked. That's all true. In other words, not to deny that. It still requires human will, human participation. But nonetheless, we don't bring about Romans 8 from Romans 7. We bring it about from the depiction of what Christ has done. We don't do what Christ has done but we participate 
in what Christ has done. Well, I think that what's really at stake here, and that is what's real, what's actual. In other words, like what you're saying is, is that God's creation is what's real and actual. And what you're doing in your book is to say, yeah, but what we've created is a fiction. What we've created is an imaginary construct that becomes the ego. But what's real? What's real, Paul, St. Paul is saying in Romans 6, is that you died with Christ, that you were baptized, that you were raised in a newness of life. There's the whole sort of um, fiction of sin that we ourselves have, have participated in, right? We would imagine that it's everything. We would grasp that word there, even in, in Philippians 2, you know, that Jesus didn't consider equality quality with God, something to be grasped, like to me has like resonates with, with Genesis three, you know, that we, that we kind of grasp for being, uh, we grasp for life, but we, we were actually, what we, what we grasped was death. I think that that's what you're, that's what you're wanting to say in your work is that whatever it is that we would imagine that we would save our life through, or that we would have our being in that's apart from God is a fiction. It's, it's, it's a purely a construct that, you know, so maybe it's money or, or something or fame or uh, even pleasure or, or personhood outside of a relationship or participation in God. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that what's real, what's actual is the world that God has created in Christ that David at the beginning of the class said humanity is being redeemed because God became human. So humanity is being, you know, in the process of being glorified, transfigured, redeemed, you know, creation itself because it's good and it's real is in the process of being transfigured. Um, but what's never going to be in any way saved is that subjectivity per se, you know, in and of itself, a right. sort of a sort of sinful symbol, you know, uh, imaginary kind of construct that we imagine is uh, ourself apart from God. I don't want to be too presumptuous. Is that what you're? Yeah, there is the tendency. I'm afraid we get it in some forms of particularly a glorification in Western. Let me let, well, let me just go back to Coakley. Just read a kind of cruciform dependence on God in the vulnerability of the dereliction, the darkness of agony, such as a profound sense of the mind's darkening and a disconcerting reorientation of the senses, the willingness to endure a form of naked dispossession before God. A part of this sounds good. The willingness to sur surrender control, not to any human power, but solely to God's power. So she's going to present the primary mode in which we approach God as one of vulnerability. The willingness to accept the arid vacancy of a simple waiting on God in prayer. She's talking about Romans 8. The willingness at the same time to accept disconcerting bombardments of the realm of the unconscious. All these are the ascetic tests of contemplation, without which no epistemic or spiritual deepening can start to occur. It is a necessity, she's saying, to go through this dereliction, this darkness, this agony. And I guess it raises a question in part. She denies that creation ex nihilo is a clear teaching of the Bible. And I'm afraid that there may, in fact, be lacking what you just said an appreciation for creation per se, a lack of appreciation for the giftedness. Apparently, life in the spirit is more profound or deeper or wider or something than to just purely suffering. Apparently, there's a fullness of life in God, apparently, that can encompass both joy and suffering and love and suffering and, and peace and, you know, and all these different things, right? I think that in this, that there is just a positive 
view of creation that we need to bring out. A very Eastern view, what is taking place in Christ is a completion of God's good purposes for, for you know, in creation. And that has not been undone by sin, and what God is doing in Christ is not an, you know, it's not over and against His goodness, His good work in creation. That affirmation that you get in a, a high view of, first of all, creation ex nihilo, that God brought this, this thing about from nothing. You could compare two creation ex nihilos. You know, actually, Romans 7 can be read as a kind of creation ex nihilo. This is the way Lacan reads it. Yeah, I see. That it's nothing. Mm-hmm. And that what a human being is, is the dynamic of nothingness circulated in uh-huh. negativity. Oh, that's a creation ex, ex nihilo. <laughs> that doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> But it's a create. But that's your book. You're saying that the ego is a creation out of nothing. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. a cre- it's a creation out of like nothing, and it is nothing, and it's towards nothing, and it's just an infinite circle of futility. And what gets displaced is our entrusting ourselves to that futility. And if we miss and we entrust ourselves to the futility again, that was my point. Then we got to the heart of it. That goes back to my picture in Psalm 42. Where do we begin? I think we begin with the recognition of creation and God's presence and the giftedness of this. The, The thing that we're in pursuit of is not our knowing. You know, this is, Paul says this a couple of times. He says it in Galatians that you would know God, and then he says, oh, that you would be known by God. What is primary is not our knowing, but it's God's knowing. It's God's recognizing us. And of course, involved in that, you know, you love God, and in that God has known you. That certainly there is the realization of the recognition, but what is primary for us is God loves us. God recognizes us. And that is then the fulfillment of desire. And that recognition is not something that comes about because of what we've done, but because of what God has done. Well, I would just want to say that, that, that whether or not suffering is necessary or not, it's the human, can, it's the situation that we find ourselves in, right? So, and so that's why, you know, when Christ becomes man, he fully embodies that thing that we all have to do. So like in Psalm 107, where some were in the desert and they were screwed, you know, and they called out, they cried out for God to help, and God did. And some were in the, you know, the sea and they were screwed. They had, you know, Jonah, we get wrapped around the axle talking about, well, was Jonah historical or not? But the point of Jonah is that whatever, whatever the great fish is that's swallowing up, whether it's an actual fish or whether it's the devil or Satan or heroin or whatever it is that it's swallowing up, but he says, he's holding the scroll, you know, in the icon that says, I cried out to the Lord in my affliction and he heard me. And so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, is whether suffering is like necessary or whatever, it's, to me, yeah, but we all find ourselves in this situation of suffering. And at least for me, that's where Christ meets us, right? It is in our dereliction or in that suffering or in that wasteland or in that, you know, flood or uh, whatever other metaphors that, that we want to, to use, that that's just the human situation that we all are in. We're all subject to the powers of sin and death and uh, evil and powers, like you said. So, Paul, are you trying to 
do something. Are you trying to critique nominalism through this or something? And I, I brought that up because you mentioned that with Moltmann before. You were saying his he's trying to kind of overcome. But I also was thinking at the same time of Roman Catholic and Anglo-Catholic idea of the sacrament where Christ suffers in the sacrament. I didn't particularly have nominalism. I think it is a critique of nominalism, but that wasn't the focus. The focus is that kind of understanding in which suffering, a tragedy in the words of Rowan Williams in Balthazar, the pic- picture of dereliction is taken up into God. In Moltmann, that death and nothingness, he's just doing Hegel or taken up into God. So that God himself is seeing that this pain and suffering is read as part of who God is. Uh, all the things that Matt said, in other words, in regard to the suffering. The suffering is due to sin. It's due to our fallen humanity. There is a suffering in Christ in which he takes up that sin. And then there is the suffering in Romans 8 that has nothing to do with the individual's sin. The individual is going to suffer, but they're going to suffer all of those things that are put upon them, not because of their own subjectivity, but because they're found in Christ. And so they suffer in the way that Christ suffered, not in the way that the Romans 7 I suffers. And so I think we need to distinguish those two things, and I think that sometimes we slip into confusing them. Yeah, we're going to suffer. Oh, what kind of suffering, though? And should we reify this suffering? Should we imagine that that's precisely, oh, God suffers, and so he joins us? There was a book uh, in Japan that you know, Moltmann came to Japan, and uh, a theologian there wrote The Pain of God. Even Moltmann said, wait a minute, you've taken this, you know, even a step further than Moltmann would take. Moltmann's heretic enough. And of course, there is the tendency in Japanese culture toward a kind of masochism. Coakley say, keeps saying, I'm not talking about masochism. There is that danger. We didn't quite understand the view that Coakley is presenting. Uh, Well, I think what Coakley is describing is that we, through prayer, enter into this Romans 8 situation. She's describing that almost like that's a starting point. We need Romans 6. We've already received the grace of God. And so what's what's happening there? Certainly there is this participatory thing on our part, but it's not that we're bringing this about by our own prayer, but we're participating in a gift that God has already given us. So the, you know, the, it's a class on the Holy Spirit. So I'm trying to think about, you know, obviously part of major part of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is healing. You know, a lot of our problems, whether they're psychological, mental, spiritual, social, whatever, are due to our own continued failure to walk the Christian life out, you know, our, our own failure to embody Romans 8. Um, or we, trauma we've undergone. From or others. trauma, yeah, that's right, you know, trauma. But, uh, but I'm saying apart from, you know, peril, sword, famine, all those things that you rightly pointed out that are kind of like outside of ourselves, but I just think that all of us would, you know, rightfully say, yeah, but nonetheless, like part of the Holy Spirit's work is to heal me for from habits or whatever you want to call them that are that are destructive to the life of God, you know, and there are at least like obstacles or whatever, right? To like the, to the, to sort of like that participation in God. But I think that that's just the situation that all of us find ourselves in. And I know that you, you agree. So that's why I'm trying to figure out like, what are you, what, what are you trying? That 
we look back to an accomplished fact in our life. That's Paul's depiction in Romans 6. He says, because you've been baptized, live up to it. Because this is the reality of who you are, live up to that reality. We don't bring about that reality. If that's the case, the sort of suffering that we go through that is this dark night of the soul, and this would be two readings of St. John of the Cross, One reading would be an Eastern reading in which St. John of the Cross is not depicting a necessity, and the Western reading would be to kind of reify and even glorify the dark night of the soul as if that is a necessity and that it's only there that God meets us. No, God has already met us in Christ, and it's certainly the case, as you described it, that we're all going to go through suffering and, and trials of various kinds. And I think we need to distinguish the two kinds. One of those is, well, I'm still sinful. I'm still fallen. And my own dark night of the soul is one that I bring upon. Another kind of suffering is one that is thrust upon me because I'm suffering with Christ. I don't think the first suffering is a suffering with Christ. But Paul, isn't the suffering of Christ always in relation to that whom he loves? It's not just like it's a purely individualistic sort of suffering like I do in the Roman 7 sense in my ego of like, oh, my God, I'm just suffering. I'm all alone. So, you know, maybe Christ doesn't suffer in that sense because, of course, he's the sinless one and he's truly human. But I'm wondering, though, in the context of our class, you know, when Paul uses the language, whatever we want to do with it, of, you know, grieving the Holy Spirit, I I wonder that whenever I do fall, if Christ doesn't suffer in that sense, that he's that his son, you know, his friend, his brother, his comrade, whatever you want to call it, has like fallen into things that are unbecoming, that, that, that are beneath, you know, what some of these things I fall into are sort of like beneath me, right? So like, precisely because of what you're saying, because of Romans 6, that these, these things that we imagine are, you know, have power over us, it's like St. Paul saying, no, those things are, are actually beneath you. So it really is like a dog going back to its vomit, you know, or a pig going back to wallow. It's like you're less than human. And so what my, my, my question is, though, is um, it's like, you know, this goes back to the whole suffering of God, like discussion, which I'm not sure what to even do with. But I guess I would say that if Christ does suffer with us, that whenever any of us are broken because of mistakes that we've made, you, you know, or bad decisions that we made, maybe in a maybe in a split second we made a bad decision that ruined our life, or, or that, and now our whole life is going to be marked by suffering because of that decision. Doesn't Christ suffer in some sense with me? Not you know in relation to His love, mm-hmm. just like you would suffer with me if I was going through something that I did that was really wrong. Let's say if I did something really wrong, and you were like, "Man, that's that was wrong," but you know what? And then now I'm suffering because you're suffering. Or maybe that's kind of getting us off of your point, even if it's a purely though high act of transgression, like a heavy hand, high-handed, whatever sort of act of disobedience. I'm like, yeah, you know, I know it's wrong. I'm going to do it anyways, and then I'm just destroyed by it in grief and in my suffering and in my sort of brokenness isn't christ suffering in the sense that he loves it's a way of humanly speaking i would guess uh, but that he's suffering in that sense it's not because he's like you said it's not because he's a, he's sinful but it's because the world i'm sinful the world's sinful and he lives in me that's the terrible thing you know so even whenever i sin christ is still in me the holy spirit is still in me i'm still my father's son if that was happening to my child and i'm a sinful man 
suffering would, love. Yeah. That would be a suffering. Yeah. That would be like a suffering love. And I'm sure that you agree with everything that I just said. So like, what is, what is the distinction that you're wanting to make this? That there's a fine point. I think what you just said is Moltman when he's not being a heretic. And I think that's the distinction that needs to be made. There is this suffering love that it just seems intrinsic to God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. My daughter, she came home, I can't remember, it was like first grade, and she was upset and crying, and we just assumed that she had gotten in trouble. But it wasn't her, it was another little boy in the class got in trouble. But if you know little kids, they're totally sympathetic. They're totally, in other words, it was just like it happened to her. I think in that sense that that is a kind of that sort of suffering in which we share in the suffering of our neighbors and our friends and those that we love is part of the image of God that we bear, that yeah, like, em empathy and sympathy. Rejoice with those who rejoice, is the, and then the opposite is what's the, weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. Even in Matthew 25, right, that working in ministry, we're working with people who are, are in work as a chaplain or whatever. Like whenever Christ is saying, I was thirsty. You gave me a drink. I was hungry. In other words, I was suffering because I was in jail. It's an interesting way to think about it, right? I was suffering in some ways. You, you fed me. You fed me. You came to me. So it's interesting. But but maybe that guy's in jail because of, obviously, you know, right? He's in jail uh, because of something that he, that he did. I, this is almost a critique of me. <laughs> That's my favorite kind of critique. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That there is a real problem here in that people truly are teaching, privileging a form of suffering a kind of asceticism that should not be privileged or glorified. And so there is an ascetic practices. There is a kind of self-punishing understanding. Self-flatulation. And it's there, I think, in Lutheranism and his notion of the absence of God. I don't think that that's the truth about Christianity. God hasn't absconded. He hasn't disappeared. He's there with us. And so it's there in forms the of Protestant, the hidden God, there's forms of Protestantism, and I think it tends to be forms of Western mysticism that privilege or glorify a kind of self-punishing asceticism. We'll find a theology that emphasizes the death of Christ, that emphasizes the agony of the cross. And then we'll find a theology that focuses on the resurrection. I think we do need to focus on the resurrection, and it does encompass, then, the death of Christ and being joined to Christ, but that process is completed in living the resurrection life, which is certainly not a triumphalism, but it is, then, the notion, oh, that this thing has already been defeated. Still the suffering of Christ, but it's a hopeful suffering. Paul, can you give me a, like a concrete example of just your garden variety, everyday Christian experiencing the type of thing that you're describing, self-punishment, yeah. you know, just, just for a regular person? What's an example of a way that someone may, you know, of the type of behavior that they might engage in and what that has to do with Christ or what it doesn't have? Like someone who seeks martyrdom, maybe? Well, maybe. Yeah. I don't uh, know. Paul, what do you, Paul, look, give me, give me a, an example. You must have one. Justin actually brought out a good case in the chapter that there are people who suffer from mental illness, or there's people who suffer from depression, 
there are people who suffer always the dark night of the soul. That's not spirituality. That may be a physiological thing. They may need drugs. Jesus is probably not going to help that, uh, you know, certain forms of depression. And so to call that, to privilege that, to say that's a good thing can be highly damaging. Okay, I definitely agree with that. Here, let me, I'll read, this is another quote, Tonstead. Let me give you two quotes. One of these I sort of disagree with. Lynn Tonstead has already put her finger on the mistake that Coakley makes about intertwining Christology and anthropology in terms of kenosis. Christ did not suffer his own idolatries and sins from which he had to be purged. As Coakley recognizes, he suffers the consequences of the idolatries and sins of others. So his human kenosis cannot be the kenosis into which the prayer is shaped. The prayer is shaped. Tonstead, as Karen Kilby observes, human action of redirecting misdirected desire is to be called repentance rather than an embodiment of Christological kenosis. That is that misdirected desire, we could get the wrong picture. Human vulnerability to God for Coakley, as Tonstead remarks, continually, inextricably, and he's uh, she's quoting here, intrinsically involves suffering. You're vulnerable to God, you're going to continually, inextricably, and intrinsically suffer. Coakley goes so far as to say that it is the productive suffering of self-disclosure, or a productive or empowering form of pain. And the productive result of the spiritual pain and suffering is affirmed in anticipation and proven in retrospect. This gets into her, you know, her reading of John of the Cross, What John of the Cross acquaints us with is that according to Coakley, quote, physical and spiritual pain are inexorably welded together and subject the subjective experience, whatever happens to him, neurologically or physiologically, is of a progressive transformation into God, even if only retrospectively understood. She's making suffering a necessity. She's saying it's inextricably involved with spirituality and that it's a part of being brought into transformation. Now, I, you know, I think we could all agree that we may suffer in the transformation, but I don't think we'd agree with the reason. Suffering is not to be privileged. Suffering is not redemptive. Suffering is always a futility. We may pass through suffering and it be experienced as part of a redemptive process, but suffering is always a futility. That's what God is impassable, what you just said. Yeah, I think this is an affirmation of a form of divine simplicity. I think so. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you finally came. <laughs> Here, we, we made it. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, really, I, I agree that suffering is always a futility. There is no theodicy. There is no, uh, let's make it good. It's actually evil. It's actually, and so to imagine. It's a negation, man. Yeah, it's a negation of, of the good. And so to imagine that God himself then is, you know, perhaps the ground and the, you know, that, that suffering lives and moves and has its being in God is just a total misunderstanding. And that Christ, and this is the, the distinction that we have to make, that Christ in his human nature, that whenever he became human, 
These, these are two things that are too high for me, right? But whenever he became human, he, he did undergo the changes of, you know, he became human without change, but he became, you know, he died. You know, he, he suffered. But I think that you're right to say that it's, it's he, not... Well, he suffered because of sin. Right. Not his own, but the sin that killed him. Well, what people did to him. Yeah. yeah. They crucified him. No question. And this is here in Romans 8, too, that, you know, Paul almost says as much in his word for suffering. It is a word that is linked to matiotis or the word for lie, futility, that he's linking human suffering to a futility, the same futility that I think he's described in Romans 7. Suffering is always a futility. That doesn't yeah. mean that God can't take that suffering and that it becomes part of that out of that, that there is something good that's brought. But the necessity of it, and I'm afraid that the quote I gave from Coakley makes it a necessity. And you find it in Rowan Williams with his notion of a tragic God. And it's there in Balthazar. And it's there in Moltmann, who I like. But I think we need to make a distinction. But I guess this is where I'm confused, though, because Christ was a man of sorrows, and he was a man of sorrows not because he had something, you know, wrong on the on his inside, but he was a man of sorrows because of the world and because of the powers and because of the devil and all this stuff. And on top of that, we have the because of the our did sin. not recognize him. He our made the world, but the world did not know him as he was. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, is that as human beings who are fallen, we really do have to reckon at all times with the fallenness of our flesh, that there really is a war. Uh, we don't call it as, you know, whatever, our sin. I can be on the highest of highs, but I still have the hounds of hell, like sort of nipping at my and then nipping at my heels. That's just what it means to be human. It's like we're always, we're in the midst of like a war. That's where I'm a little bit confused is that like, the, the, yeah, it might not be necessary, but it's just the way that it is. It's like, we're here, we're finite, we all got bills to pay, we all got uh, ailments, we all have sins that we're fighting, or, or intrusive thoughts, or anxieties, or depressions. That's just a part of what it means. No, not to be human in the, in the full sense that Christ was, but in our fallenness, this is what it is. Suffering in itself is not good. So we don't seek suffering for its own sake. We're not masochists. We're like, yeah, I want to suffer. I mean, right now, I'm just sitting here burning up with jealousy, looking at Trenton's beard. It's, he's got a perfect, awesome beard. The impulse is always for people to view their suffering on the way to God. So suffering in itself has no meaning. But in the, in the longer story, in the bigger picture, what Christ is doing in us and where he wants to take us... But this is the paradox of the cross, too, because, right, so if suffering is meaningless and all this stuff, yeah, but it was in Christ's cross that the meaning of the world is is in some way given to us, right? Like, so, so Not, maybe the, the word meaningless is the wrong word. Okay. Futility. Futility. It is a futility, and he bore that futility. But it's in that futility that we're... So we're saved, right? That we're saved, right? Like we're, we're saved from out of the futility. Yeah. But he joins us. He joins us in the futility. Yes. I mean, Paul, you want to say that it's not the superego punishing. Isn't that what you're saying? You're saying that, that, okay, you know, whatever it is, it's not that punishing superego of like, you're dumb, you're no good, you're, you're ugly, whatever that punishing futility is, that there's no salvation in that particular way of being human. You right. have to be saved from that whole fiction. Right. And that's, I think we're in the midst of a very sick 
Christianity. And if we don't make these distinctions, we're just aggravating the problem. And part of the sickness is then that there is a whole religion that reads Romans 7, the depiction of sin, as, as if that's the solution. As it's normative? Calvin, yeah. So what you're doing here with this critique today is you're striking at the very heart of Coakley's entire project. No. No? Because <laughs> you seem to be saying her description of contemplation is bad. And, and she says this contemplation is at the core of her entire project. I think it's a limited critique in that she's inconsistent. She has an idea that God, in fact, is not in competition with creation. She has the idea then powerlessness or, uh, you know, the notion that God is working with the grain of the universe. But it's God is for us. God Bart is for us. Bonhoeffer. Very Bonhoefferian. So if I were to say something simple, Paul, would like a bad reading of this approach to theology be like the typical response when something bad happens in someone's life and somebody says, well, God's got a plan. It's all, it's all part of God's plan. You know, we can take comfort in knowing that this is just a part of life. We should just rest in knowing that God's in control. Yeah, no, that's the perversion that, that we're trying to avoid. And I'm afraid that any time that we start privileging suffering or imagining that suffering is a necessity, I don't think, as Justin said, this is a critique of the very foundation of everything she's saying, because I think she's better than the quotes that I gave you. But I, I'm just giving you this as a kind of warning that sometimes she does fall into this language. And I think that we should look at this prayer that's happening in Romans in a more joyful way, not so much the dark night of the soul. This inarticulateness is not an inarticulateness just of suffering, but of a kind of inexpressible participation in what God is doing in creation. I mean, so it doesn't seem like the darkness part is normative, but that it's something that's going to happen. So how do you interpret that and deal with that? And if, if you interpret that as, you know, God's plan, Calvinism or whatever, you know, God's in control, you know, John Piper just put out a thing. Why are people ugly? <laughs> and it's like, well, cause God ordained it silly. You know? <laughs> wow. Also in the process, I think we need to get a positive, you know, understanding that Paul calls us back to baptism. He calls us back to a reality. I think that's what he's doing in Romans 8, too. He's calling us to a reality that, yes, we need to fully recognize and realize to participate in, but it's already a reality. And so it's something that's gifted to us. And, and you're going to suffer if you follow Christ, because as the world hated me, so the world will hate you. But it's not. <laughs> it's not like you're doing it to yourself. Right, right. And I think it's, that's the uh, that's the suffering Probably we should expect and be shocked. In other words, if we, we should if we don't suffer in that if, way, we should yeah, we may not be doing it right. I guess I'm wondering if that the true joy to you said this a long time ago, Paul. That well, where where do we encounter the Holy Spirit? You know, where is it that we encounter? the joy of the Holy Spirit and, and, and the peace of the Holy And you said it's in the, it's in the work of the kingdom, fellowshipping with uh, people who are suffering in any way, right? The, the thirsty, the hungry, the prisoners, the hot people who are hospitalized, the, that there's paradoxically a joy and a peace that comes with taking up our cross, which obviously is a way of manner of talking about like suffering. And then I was thinking about 
the latter of, of divine ascent. So, so John Climacos, you know, he writes the, the, the latter of divine ascent. He's saying, well, this is the way that we can ascend to theosis, let's call it, right? Step one, renunciation of the world. Sounds painful. Step two, detachment. Step three, exile from family, whoever. Step four, obedience, repentance, remembrance of death, mourning, freedom from anger, he goes on. It almost sounds like the way that we ascend the ladder to divinity, what is it to share in the sufferings of Christ? Well, he, you know, of course, he renounces the world. He's detached from the things that normally make us happy. He's exiled from his own people, from his own land, from his own religion, all these different things. He's obedient, which is, as we all know, very difficult. He's living his life of total remembrance of death and of the cross and of mourning for the situation of the world. But of course, we would all want to say that if there was any man who's ever lived who is full of the joy of the Holy Spirit, it'd be our Lord Jesus Christ. Who, if there's any ever man who's ever lived who is full of the peaceableness of the kingdom, it almost seems like Jesus has given us something that like doesn't even make sense to like my own reasonable ears. Give away everything, give everything. No one, he says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He says like these really hard things. And it's weird, like it's almost like he's saying if you want to know, if you really want to experience true joy and freedom and peace and love and fellowship, you know, the stuff that we're trying to have in this class. He's saying, renounce the world, detach yourself from everything, be willing to undergo exile, be willing to hang out with the prostitutes and the unclean and the tax collectors and the sinners and be counted with the refuse of the world and be the you know, object of all men's scorn and to be made fun of and, and to be outcast by everybody. And it's like, I think that what he's teaching in a way that I don't understand is that Perhaps like that's that's how we really do experience the power of the Holy Spirit with all of its feelings, like we've been, you know, joy and peace and all these different things, right? So like while suffering isn't a necessity, it's a given, that's for sure. We all know that. And so maybe it's I guess like the way we orient ourselves to the suffering, just like the you know, the rest of the ways that we can orient ourselves. Am I missing something here? Christ is absolutely calling us, I think, to suffer with you know with the world with with him ultimately that must be a good you know not because suffering is good but because that's that's where the world needs christ the most right it's not the rich it's not the righteous that he came to save it's the it's the sinners it's the wretched all that to say that i guess i don't understand this this talk about the necessity of suffering suffering is a given and it sounds like christ is saying abandon pleasure abandon security and abandon contentment well i think i think the issue that maybe the word necessity has gotten you confused that you're describing a kind of necessity but the necessity is not a divine necessity it's not a necessity that is brought about because of who God is. It's a necessity brought about because of the state of the world and its sinfulness. And so the necessity, as Coakley is describing it in that particular passage, or as Moltmann sometimes describe it, that the suffering is actually one that God himself experiences in an inter-Trinitarian relationship. That's not what we're talking about. That's no. not what you're describing. So uh, we were, I was joking earlier, but you really do sound like you're coming around to say that. No, no, I don't know what you mean by coming around. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that you're abandoning any notion that God, in, in you know. But, you know, in your own description, then you went on to describe suffering love. And I agreed with you there. Right. In other words, there is an experience of love. Love is a kind of emotion that there may be an intrinsic suffering to it. 
I'm not going to deny that, but it's not the sort of suffering that we're describing that's brought about because of the sinfulness, that it's it's not a, a suffering inherent to who God is. Uh, but there may be a suffering on the part of God as he loves, as he pours himself out for sure. creation. Do I believe in divine simplicity? Yeah, but I, I don't want that to be the controlling factor in my understanding of who God is. I want the person and work of Christ to be the controlling factor. And I think that's the sense that Coakley, I'm agreeing with what she's saying, but I'm also diverging from what she's saying in that I think she's giving too large a role in some places and some pieces to the necessity that we meet God in suffering. We may, but that is not a necessity because of who God is, but that's a necessity because of, as you've described it, that Christ meets us outside of the city, that Christ meets us then not in the value system of this world, but as we are drawn out of that, and that in, entails suffering. That's helpful. I mean, that clears some things up, but I guess I would just want to say that because of our the givenness, there ain't no other way to meet God apart from suffering. That is our situation. We're, you know, we're, we're, we're living in a bleeped up world. You know what I mean? Where it's like, we, there ain't no other way to meet him. There ain't no other way to meet God than in the context of suffering. You want me to put this in good Lacanian terms? Oh yeah. You know, I do. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk dirty now. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk dirty. Is there, is it, is it uh, Lacanian? Is that how we say it? And I'm going to speak in Lacanian right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Turn off the recording and we're going to talk about per the perverts and we're going to talk about, no, that... leave, it on. leave it on. This is, uh, the idea is very simple that there is a gap and that's depicted that the guy is out of control in Romans seven, that in some way he's got the mind and he's got the body and never the twain shall meet. And there is a gap. And of course, what I'm afraid of is that sometimes she privileges the gap. But what happens in, I think, in a true baptismal experience is we're joined to the body. Of course, what we mean is the body of Christ, but I think also that we're joined to the reality of human embodiment once again. And that is then the enlivening of that there is a role for human desire. There is a role for the erotic I think that quite literally, you know, this was my kind of reversal that don't give way on your desire. That can be read as a kind of Christian idea that, uh, that, that there is a role for the body and we're joined to our body in a way that we, in fact, the disjointedness, there is no sexual relationship in Lacanian. In Coakley, there is. She talks about well, uh, when the husband penetrates the wife, she's talking about, she's likening. So the female, the church is in the role of the female, right? And she likens the marriage relationship. She uses like that language of penetration. So the, we're made the bride of Christ that we're put in the feminine role. Right. But the recognition then, I, I think even that about the love of God, that that is very often what we think of as a feminine characteristic to be recognized, to be loved. Oh, but we're all put in that role, and that is fulfilled for us in Christ. And that's the suffering there. It's birth suffering. It's actually giving birth to something. It's not just a futile sort of right. Suffering. I mean, even in the birth pangs, nonetheless, you get a baby, that there's fruit from this. And that's the way that Paul is approaching this understanding of suffering. It's the suffering of the groanings in travail of 
you know, it's still the same language. It's still a kind of futility, but it's not the futility of Romans 7 or the body of death. It's the futility of giving birth, that pain of groaning, in which there is fruit that is born as a result. Yeah, well, James gives a similar metaphor, of course, right? He gives the same exact thing, only he talks about the child, you know, the baby, the sin that grows up to death, you know, to, to sort of be death, right? You so give, You give birth to a, a baby and his name is death. Yeah, that's interesting. So you really can give birth to, to something terrible. That's the exorcist version. Of. Yeah, don't give birth to Damien. Dan, are, is everything uh, crystal clear? Absolutely, it's cool. Okay. Hey, enjoy listening in. Carry on. All right, all right. Well, I'm glad. I, I'm glad. <laughs> when are you? Are you free at any time, or when are you? Yeah, free? yeah. I, I'm free all the time. All the time. That's yeah. a wonderful job you've got. See, I want Dan's hair. Now that I see, I'm not sure. I want Dan's hair. It's a never-ending. It's a never-ending vortex of, of desire and of suffering. You know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. It's been a good, good class. Love you guys. Night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.